This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. It feels like we have not been to the theatre for a few weeks, and so this week we are going twice. Our first stop is at Stevens College's Mecklenburg Theatre for a new production of a classic work of American theatre. Later in the show, we'll be peeking behind the curtains of a contemporary rock musical at Talking Horse Productions, and sandwiched in between our theatre visits, we have a new collection of poetry. Before we get underway, though, I would like to say a huge thank you to two women who once again brought an incredible festival to life in Colombia, Tracy Lane and Shay Jasper. Thank you for bringing another Roots and Blues to Colombia. I know the work you put into the festival is immeasurable, as is the pleasure that it created for so many people. Thanks, too, for all the work that is done behind the scenes to make Colombia's Roots and Blues a beacon for festivals where women feel safe and centred. And, of course, thank you, too, to the huge number of volunteers that helped to make it all possible. And with that, let's head off to the theatre. In 1937, as the world hurtled towards the Second World War, the playwright and novelist Thornton Wilder wrote a work that would win him his second Pulitzer Prize, the play titled Our Town. The play is set in the fictional town of Grover's Corners, New Hampshire, spanning the years from 1901 to 1913, and focuses on George Gibbs and Emily Webb, childhood friends whose relationship eventually blossoms into romantic love and marriage, but whose marriage is cut short by the death of Emily in childbirth. It is a play about the little moments in life, a meditation on love and life and death. Wilder said of his play that it is an attempt to find a value above price for the smallest events in our daily life. A wake-up call for all of us, as Emily tells us when after her death she revisits one day of her life. A wake-up call to realise how wonderful Earth is, to remember that our time here goes by so fast, that we don't make time to look at one another and that we are all blind to the wonder of life while we live it. Wilder himself was said to be a lonely man. He never married, travelled extensively, was fluent in four languages and was a great listener and observer of people, a witness to human relationships without being in the midst of one. Our town was a radical departure from the plays of the time, which Wilder said he found invasive and dissatisfying. He wrote that he had ceased to believe in the stories he saw at the theatre, that theatre, quote, aimed to be soothing, that the tragic had no heat, the comic had no bite, the social criticism failed to indict us with responsibility. And his response was Our Town, a piece of meta-theatre where the fourth wall is broken by the stage manager who addresses the audience directly and plays a godlike character moving us around in time. 
And on October the 27th, Our Town opens at Stevens College's Mecklenburg Theatre, directed by Elizabeth Broughton Palmieri, who, along with actor Lindsay Oberly, are my guests this evening. Hello, Elizabeth and Lindsay. Hello. Hi. When I first saw you were directing Our Town, Elizabeth, of which I admit I was embarrassingly ignorant, I thought, well, gosh, that's a strange choice. But then I read the play, watched the movie, did my homework, and I thought, wow, this is actually the perfect fit for you as a master of physical acting and someone who, like Wilder, is not interested in sentimentality. So tell me (laughs) your history with this play, Elizabeth. So, Diana, did you not see when Greenhouse did it in 2014? I did not. Okay. And I don't know how I missed that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my journey with Our Town is very similar to many, many a theater student or even just student in general. Um, I first read it in high school and I found it moving, but I also found it a little boring I was kind of at a stage in my life where I hadn't lived enough and probably experienced enough happiness and pain and all the things that a life is filled with (laughs) to really, truly appreciate it. And um, then about a decade later, I picked it up again. I read it and decided that uh, it was, in fact, the perfect fit for Greenhouse Theater Project. And so we performed it. And, you know, I mean, you know my work, so you know that I'm a big fan of minimalist theater and just true storytelling. And I think that the beauty of this meta-theatrical piece of theater is that it asks the actors to just tell the story. And you know that they're actors, so that's that's the kind of uh, the kind of fun part about it too is that we're not trying to pull the wool over your eyes or anything. It's like, yep, we're just actors telling you a story, and then it's going to end, and then you're going to go home and continue living your life. But when Jen approached me about directing it at Stevens College this year, I was really really thrilled because this is yet another decade now, three decades uh, where I've approached the material from a different angle each time. And now I'm a mother of two and it's basically near impossible for me to get through this script each time without sobbing. So (laughs) sentimentality is one. (laughs) I don't believe that it will come across in your play. So that is interesting that, you know, you'd have three decades in three different ways of looking at it. And that this time around, the third time around, you now have an extra layer, an extra onion layer to unpeel as you're (laughs) looking at this. Lindsay, for you, as a, a young actor, I guess you're 20, 21, mm-hmm. you're kind of looking at it as the way, I guess, as Elizabeth did the first time around. So I'm curious how you perceive it and whether any preconceived ideas have changed as you've worked with Elizabeth on this production. Yes, I've been looking at it at a very, wow, I am leaving home right now for like the first time ever. And I also have read the script in high school. And so now approaching it in college, it's very, it's very sad (laughs) because I have this whole thing about my parents and right now in my real life, that's happening to me. And yeah, it's very sad. It it is. I mean, I watched the movie version and was getting all verklempt watching it. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to be a mess when I watch it, Stevens. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's a quote, Elizabeth, by another director who said, of the challenges of directing the play, if you've had real disappointments and real trouble in your life, you can hear 
the larger statements in the play. But if you haven't, you're likely to have those larger statements flow right past you. And what someone brings to seeing a performance of this play makes a huge difference to what they take away. And that's not something that Mm. you can control as a director, but it is a great challenge. How do you approach that idea of what people take home, that challenge? Mm -hmm. So, you know, theater is about relating. It's about relationships and it's about relating. And so, like you said, I can't control what the audience is going to connect to, what they're going to relate to. Hopefully they they come with an open heart and an ability to empathize, which I think is always key when you're entering the theater. You're not always going to be able to understand, you know, maybe like a killer or someone who's, you know, lost a child or something, but you can empathize with the, with the story, with the situation. And I think that a lot of these young actors uh, approaching this material, it's starting to resonate. You know, the first read through, everything is kind of glossed over a little bit. The second read through, things start to click a little bit. And then as we do character work, then you can start digging deeper. And like you said, start peeling back those layers of the onion. And it's really important, you know, it doesn't matter as an actor, what you've really experienced, your job is to be able to, to embody and tell the story. And so I think with these, with these actors, that's what I'm doing right now. And, and each night we're in rehearsal, we're, I'm trying to kind of challenge them a little bit more and almost to the point where I feel like they're probably uncertain that it's happening, <laughs> but I'm noticing, I'm <laughs> noticing the lights going on, but, but it is, it's a process and it's, the process that I absolutely, I mean, this is why I do theater. It's, it's about the process for me. It's about getting in there and stripping ideas down and then building on top of that. So, you know, there are moments that I think people will, like you said, they'll understand certain characters. They'll, um, if you've had a child leave home and move on and you're an empty nester, you're going to understand the, the mothers in the play or the fathers and, uh, there's a lot of people dealing with troubles, you know, they have personal struggles. And, um, and I think that that also, you know, when I was growing up, mental health wasn't at the forefront, uh, being talked about being addressed. And I think that now, uh, it's, it's really lovely working with a group of young actors now who live in, in a time when, we are open about discussing these things. And there, there are these topics that are kind of floating around that um, the Thornton Wilder definitely addressed. You can hear my baby. She's right here. That's <laughs> Freya. Um, but yeah, he, he, he was definitely addressing these things. But I think it's taken years for people to really be able to uh, fully understand and, and talk about what's really happening and what's really going on with these people. Lindsay, as you have dug deeper into Emily, what have you found? Well, whenever I first read through it, I thought it was like, you know, a kind of not like a basic character, but I didn't realize how many layers there are to her. Like she's always contradicting herself in some sort of way, like trying to find validation. And she's much more sassy than I had <laughs> figured at first. <laughs> do you like her? Oh, I do. I love her. 
ever since I read it in high school, I've wanted to play her. Elizabeth, there's definitely a feeling of datedness hmm. to the play in the use of language, the way people interact with each other that doesn't ring true in 21st mm-hmm. century life. How much liberty are you allowed to have with that sort of thing? <laughs> well, again, you know me. I kind of do what I want. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, honestly, it, to me, it's like a timeless classic in the sense that I love approaching pieces like this from an angle where I respect the period in which it's either written in or that it's taking place in, but I like to also bring it into the world we live in now and bring some relevancy and not date it at all, really. So, I mean, from the costume design, we're coming at it from this idea that she's representing lots of different periods of time, you know what I mean? So you're not going to see, for example, one aesthetic in terms of costumes. And same with music. The music is all over the place. So you have some uh, more folk-like pieces mixed with more alternative contemporary music and so on and so forth. So I really love messing with with a piece like this in that way and bouncing all over so people don't feel like you are stuck in 1913. But I did, you know, change a couple little things. (laughs) For example, I removed Bessie the cow from the milkman. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The milkman is delivering milk bottles, you know, and and you'll be able to hear all of that. The sound effects are all going to be done by the actors offstage. So you'll hear, you know, everything. Nothing's going to be canned. But I did make the executive decision to remove Bessie. So I'm sorry for anyone who is really is really <laughs> is really tied to her. <laughs> Are you allowed to change text at all? You mean like in terms of the Thornton Wilder estate or with Stevens? I guess what you legally can do in terms of the contract that you have with the Wilder estate. That's a great question. <laughs> I really haven't I haven't changed any like true wording. There's a couple things that are kind of funny in the script. Some, I would say like almost like slang where it almost makes it sound Southern. And this play takes, is supposed to take place in New Hampshire. And so I think what Thornton Wilder wanted to touch on was just this real kind of idea of small town country living. And again, you know, like how relevant that is to today, I don't know, but I've I've allowed the actors to adjust some of those words that were a little slang to like the appropriate word and stuff like that. Lindsay, as a 21st century actor, Mm -hmm. what have been maybe some of the biggest mental hurdles for you of taking on the role of an early 20th century woman who really is from another planet compared to how you live your life today? What have been the challenges of that? I think just like, the society they lived in of where women were compared to men it's it's a little not like difficult to wrap my head around it's just like difficult to put myself in that place of there's this whole wedding scene and my father is giving me away and he has this whole speech about how now my new husband has to take care of me mm-hmm. and it just it's very silly to like try and put myself in that place Are you glad you live in the 21st century or is there something kind of romantic and simple about this life that you're seeing unrolling in the early 20th century? I definitely see like the appeal of it. Like it's a very simple, simple life and you just are in it and you're living. I feel like though, 
I much more prefer where I am now, <laughs> like getting freedom and rights and all. <laughs> Elizabeth, talking about the women, one of the comments that is often made about the play, uh, especially for its era, is the level of nuance that Wilder writes into his <laughs> female characters. Is that obvious to you? When I read it and watched it, I'm not sure that I see a huge amount of nuance. But again, I'm looking at it through a 21st century lens. How do you perceive that, Elizabeth? I like I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. But (laughs) I think that um, I think these women are smarter than they're than they're written on the page, maybe. And Mm -hmm. I'm definitely encouraging the women in my production to to find the strength in these women and not just rest on the, the characteristics that maybe like come to the surface. The mothers, for example, I mean, they run the house. They're actually the real bosses. Mm-hmm. And the idea, you know, is that the, the women are kind of bowing to the husbands and, and you kind of see the husbands checking out or kicking back and reading the paper while the, <laughs> while the wife is kind of <laughs> fluttering or dancing around the kitchen trying to get all the kids out, you know, to school on time and get breakfast on the table and manage the household. And, and chop the wood. And chop the wood and grow, <laughs> and grow the food, you know. And uh, there's a really lovely scene between Mrs. Webb and Mrs. Gibbs the two mothers where they're prepping their their beans and they're having this conversation about the things that they would wish for the things that they wish they had or places they would like to go and one of them you know her dream is to go to Paris France and she's kind of trying to figure out how she can talk her husband into or drop hints you know so he knows that that's like a dream of hers Mm -hmm. you know without sounding frivolous or silly or, or whatever and, and I just, I love that moment so much because the vulnerability that the, that the women share when it's just the women versus the strength they have to kind of carry and meanwhile stay low key, you know, in the family unit is, is really fascinating to me. Mm. Lindsay, do you have a favorite moment in the play or a favorite line? I love all of the Emily and George scenes. They're so awkward, mm. <laughs> but in such an endearing way, it's very fun. It is. And the ending, I mean, I don't feel like we're giving anything away because it's such a well-known play. But the ending, the last act is so incredibly moving. So all the laughter and empathy and and just little moments that you have in the first two acts. By the third act, I mean, you need to have your hankies at the ready because, I mean, it's it's just a big sob fest. Spoiler. Because, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) like I say, I don't think it's a spoiler because it's a well-known play. But, I mean, yes. Emily, there's so many great lines that Emily has in that last scene. I mean, how how is that for you, acting it? Can you get through mm. it without sobbing? No. <laughs> good, good. You should tell you. We, <laughs> we ran it last time. Um, the last time we ran it, I was a mess. I don't. <laughs> I had to like hold back tears to try and get lines out. Mm. I kind of love that though, because again in that part of the process when the actor is connecting and actually hearing the words that they're saying and connecting to them maybe for the first time or whatever that is and, and you can't really control it those are those breakthroughs that you have when you're in, in the rehearsal process that are so important and meaningful and you can't really force that you know what i mean it either happens or it doesn't happen mm-hmm. and so cry as much as you want now <laughs> um, <laughs> because you know you'll you'll have the strength to to pull through the performance and 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 it, and it just it, you know when you're there and you're allowing yourself to be vulnerable to 
to the character, it's such a gift. You know, it's a gift for you as the actor and it's a gift for the audience. Elizabeth Thornton Wilder died in 1975, but were he still around to chat with? What would you like to ask him about this play? (laughs) Well, it was so interesting hearing your intro because I guess I didn't realize what a recluse he was. Like, I think that what I would want to know about is you said he was a great listener and you can tell from this piece of theater that he was an observer, Mm -hmm. that wherever he was, he was probably sitting in a corner watching for hours the people around him in and out wherever you know whatever kind of space he was in and I think that I would probably ask him something about crafting his characters Mm. and the insight and the intention that goes into each each one because you can feel it you can feel it when you when you read his characters even if they have one line or two lines it's like you know exactly who that person is <laughs> well our town by thornton wilder opens at stevens college's mecklenburg theater on thursday the 27th of october and runs through the weekend closing with a 2 p.m matinee on sunday the 30th for more information and tickets visit stevens.edu forward slash events and scroll down till you see our town elizabeth bratton palmieri as you know i am a huge fan of your work and I cannot wait to see how you are presenting this iconic play. And Lindsay, I look forward to seeing you as Emily and sobbing over your death. (laughs) Thank you both so much for taking us behind the scenes and for making time to chat. Thank you. Thank you, Diana. The mother-daughter relationship can be complex, even in lives that are uncomplicated. I don't remember a time when the fear of losing my mother was anything other than a wound that I would pick at any time doubt or insecurity would plague me. Yet I also often felt suffocated by her fierce love for me and her desire to live vicariously through me, always seeking more and more details about how I lived. For many years after she died, that perpetual sense of both holding her tight and pushing her away haunted my dreams, in which she would come back to life as if her death had just been a game, and I would be super angry with her, not because of the trick, but because it meant I would have to go through the grief of losing her all over again. Stay dead, I would shout at her in my dreams, and then wake up and feel wrecked with guilt. I was simultaneously crushed and also bizarrely liberated by her death. And I wish I'd had the eloquence and poetry both to celebrate and mourn her in writing, but I never had the patience to try. But my next guest did. Lynn Jensen Lampy's first full-length collection of poems titled Talk Smack to a Hurricane is a work of deep elegy and beauty all about her mother and their relationship. It is a journey into the joy and suffering of their bond and the complexity of navigating their relationship through her mother's inexplicable mental shift after Lampy's birth and the damage wrought upon her mother by decades of invasive and destructive psychiatric intervention in a time before postpartum mental health was a thing that the medical profession understood. It is a collection that traverses the pain, anger, sadness and shame of having a mum that wasn't like other mums, that eloquently details neglect, confusion, mental health and love, and which, as one reviewer wrote, is a work of deep reconciliation formed through deft lyricism and rigorous poetics of the restorative possibilities of profound love. Lynn, welcome to Speaking of the Arts. 
Thank you. I'm glad to be here. My relationship with my mother feels like a breeze compared to the pain and confusion that suffused yours. But I felt through your words that same sense of holding tight and pushing away. And I found myself picking at that wound again of, I could have been a better daughter. Tell me about the catharsis for you of producing this collection. Well, I think that I never really thought of the word catharsis, but it did put things in perspective for me. I realized how much I loved my mother, and I realized how much she loved me, and just that it was marred by the circumstances um, of the relationship and that she was gone quite a bit, that when she was present, she wasn't necessarily herself and wasn't always available in the way that I, I wanted her to be. Tell us about your mom, especially what you know about her as a young woman before you were born, before this mental shift? Well, the word that comes to mind is vivacious. I, my father said that to me. I, it's evident in photos of her as a young girl. She had many friends. She was in theater. She was very, very smart. She, at 15 or 16, she was one of only two girls in the whole United States chosen to go to Puerto Rico for an international Girl Scout convention. She was amazing in many ways. She she lived in the French house when she was in college, which meant they just spoke French 24-7. She, she did all kinds of things. She taught horseback riding. She was a lifeguard. She, even after I was born, she was part of an, an interracial group called the Dialogue Group. It was black and white women in Baton Rouge who got together to talk about racial issues and, and personal things in their lives. So she, she did many, many things to be proud of. And yet somehow I let my own feelings about mental illness dull the pride that I could have felt in her achievements. So you were born in 1959, at a time when the American Psychiatric Association had a relatively new manual at their disposal, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, known as the DSM-1. And that dictated pretty much all psychiatric treatment, but it was not full of understanding of postpartum depression. So what happened after you were born? Well, the best I know is, well, in the book, there's a series of erasure poems, eight poems based on eight pages of a letter she wrote the day after I was born. And on that day, she was ecstatic to be a new mom and was even already looking forward to having another child. Sometime between then and when I was about a month old, she had enough problems and instability and I think periods of psychosis that she was sent away to a hospital at an Air Force base in Florida. And I know at that point in time, some other couples or other women on the base, other wives 
took care of me while my dad was trying to figure out where my mother went because the Air Force didn't inform him. They just sent her, and Mm -hmm. he had to go through all kinds of hoops to figure out where she was so he could get a transfer. And he contacted my maternal grandmother, and she ended up coming up to Newfoundland where I was born and got me, I was maybe two or three weeks old, and took me back with her to Baton Rouge. My father transferred to Florida, and as far as I know, because I don't remember, of course, I didn't see much of either parent till I was about a year old. Your writing is so honest about the confusion of as a child and also the love and the yearning and the adoration we have for these super beings who are our mothers how as children we long to be like them and I wonder if you would talk about and read for us the opening poem in the collection titled five photographs square with my mother's truth sure and this is based on four photos and the last one is is a really strong sort of compilation of a thing that happened over and over, a good thing. Five photographs square with my mother's truth. She grips me, the ceramic bird at the five and dime she can't bear to put back on the shelf. I mug for the camera, snug in her arms and out of the drifts, feed myself a mitten of snow. She wonders how she'll pay rent. She lounges in pajamas a couple weeks after my birth, holds my whole left hand with her thumb and forefinger. Caught in profile, she smiles her cheekbone and chin into a question mark without a question. We push a rotary mower, my mother in capris and me in diapers. I stretch, belly out, to reach her hands on the wooden handle. She closes her eyes, breathes in her favorite scent, cut grass in summer. The two of us stand on the tarmac, minutes before she hoists me on her hip and climbs metal stairs to board the plane. She wears pearls, high heels, a black sheath dress. I'm in pleats, patent leather shoes, in awe. I sprawl our green vinyl couch, head in her lap. My mother strokes my hair, tucks it behind my ear, her hands African violet velvet and careful as tears. Like always, she calls me doll, hopes I never break the way she does. I love the pleats and patent leather shoes and or I feel like there's a photograph of me somewhere wearing the same things. (laughs) Did you find truths through your writing that you hadn't previously been conscious of? You talked about maybe getting a different perspective and understanding your mother's love. Can you expand on that a little bit for me? I think the biggest thing didn't hit me until I was writing the acknowledgments, which was the very last thing I wrote. And it was that she really had been there all the time, emotionally all the time. It wasn't always expressed. She wasn't able to. But really, deep down, she was there. When I was a kid, and she would have a psychotic episode, and and there was one time in particular she called me names. And at the time, I and for years after, I thought 
that was her real heart. What she said in those moments was the truth. Mm. And the rest of the time was just being nice. And it really cemented for me, the writing of this book cemented for me that, no, I had it backwards. That the time she was psychotic, that wasn't really the truth. And I think going through through situations and really seeking the emotional truth of a situation instead of getting hung up on the actual details. I think that really helped me sort things out in myself and realize more about our relationship, that it was not so much that the relationship was tenuous, but our understanding of the relationship was tenuous. So did writing this book, in a way, give you back your mother? I think so. I, I would say so. I, in fact, it sounds even funny to say think. I do feel that. It just let me appreciate more parts of her. I mean, kids can never really understand their parents as people, hmm. I think. And so instead of feeling cheated out of a mother, instead of feeling like psychiatry took my mother from me, I made peace with the mother that I had, with with the amount of mothering that I had, I guess is one way to put it. Of course, the sad truth is that your mother was one of countless millions of women who, since the beginning of, let's call it male-centered medical care, fell victim to misunderstanding and misdiagnosis. And that feels eerily on topic once again as the overturning of Roe v. Wade has removed mm -hmm. our right to control our own bodies. And I think one of the most powerful works in your book is about that. Would you talk a little bit about the poem titled Fingered and then read that one for us? Sure. When I first started writing these poems, they weren't poems at all. I had the intention of writing a nonfiction book about the particular state hospital that my mother had been in. And I didn't get too far down that path before I realized that I wanted to write that because I was angry at the system that subjected her to all of these various treatments. And that was, that was part of what changed her or robbed us of, of the person she was or that she had been. And so I started writing all these poems. And at some point, I had to circle back around to this issue of anger at psychiatry. And I started looking up various records. And part of this was the research I was doing into that state hospital. And all of those things ended up becoming this poem fingered. Fingered. I write poems with hands like hers. Rounded fingertips smudge the page with mental health and mental illness. Blister as power dictates the same old social contract between doctor and patient. Love me, revere me, obey me, I'll say you're healthy. In 1883, the state insane asylum in Jackson, Louisiana, 
swallowed Emma Caribbee, 58. Recorded diagnosis, noisy and troublesome. Viola Wade, 36, deceptive in her affections. Comfort Kemp, 27, homicidal mania due to giving birth. Renamed East Louisiana State Hospital, the asylum admitted Louise, 34, my mother, already tethered in 1968 to the DSM via the fraying rope of schizophrenia and manic depression. Bipolar disorder with psychotic features due to giving birth. Being pregnant changed her brain chemistry, she said. I heard, you cause my crazy, never get pregnant. But maybe she was telling me every woman changes after making a child, and she was willing to risk being someone new again. She'd already worn skins named daughter, writer, smoker, grad student, traveler, wife, mother, unmothering when another family adopted her first child, patient, and now mother again, juggernaut of emotions and hormones splatter small rooms of the heart, chemical red, track years in sulfur and saffron, kitten heels and paper slippers. Palmistry considers conic fingers a sign of creativity, intuition, Psychiatry considers womanhood a disease. That line where she says, I guess she's saying to you, never get pregnant, is uh, something my mother said to me as well. And so it makes me wonder whether, unknown beknownst to me, my mother had maybe gone through a postpartum depression Mm -hmm. and advised me never to do the same thing, which I must admit I followed her advice. I'm a stepmom. I've never given birth to a child either. And I don't really think my mother actually said never get pregnant. But that was when you asked about realizations I had when I was writing. That was one of the realizations that that there's no way to get through pregnancy unchanged. And frankly, there's no way to get through motherhood unchanged either, whether you've birthed a child or not. Mm. Um so so my idea that there was this person who was my mother and who was a certain way and that then when I'm born and I'm growing up that she's going to remain the same, I mean, that was really, it was something that wouldn't have been true if my mother, you know, if she didn't have a mental illness, she would still be somebody who would have changed throughout my life, who I wouldn't have known in this um, in the same way that my father or her friends had known her. Mm. So in some ways, I had unrealistic expectations. And that's not to say that I, I mean, I still feel anger sometimes at, at, at psychiatry and psychiatrists. And you know, many practitioners have an arrogance. And I'm not going to say all practitioners because... People have a lot of compassion and and talent and and good instincts and are really helpful. My mother had some very helpful psychiatrists. Um, yeah, it's it's really complicated. 
Lynn Jensen Lampier's collection of poems titled Talk Smack to a Hurricane, published by Ice Flow Press, can be found at local bookstores. And you can also find out more about Lynn on her website at lynnjensenlampier.com. And that's spelled L-Y-N-N-E, Jensen, J-E-N-S-E-N, Lampie, L-A-M-P-E, lynnjensenlampier.com. Lynn, Thank you so much for sharing so much of your life with the world. And I wish we had time to read so many more of the works in the book because they are works that I just want to go back to time and time again. I, I really appreciate the opportunity and I, I really appreciated the questions that you asked because, you know, it's really been hard to sort of summarize what the book is about because it is about my mother and our relationship but then it's about psychiatry and how they view women and women's concerns it's about Jewish heritage and anti-semitism it's about being a child who all of a sudden you know is aware of this other child that preceded them you know so I mean there's just and I I know that's true of everybody's books but it really makes you realize how can you best distill what's on the page and 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 to just say something's complicated i'm like well yeah i mean everything's complicated it is we do live in complicated times but we aren't all able to write so eloquently about it so i really appreciate what you have given us and for making time to chat today thank you diane i really appreciate it Murder ballads go back centuries. One of the most famous is probably Knoxville Girl, an Appalachian murder ballad, first recorded in the United States back in the 1920s, but which is derived from a much older English ballad called The Bloody Miller or Hanged Shall I Be about the 1683 murder of Anne Nichols at Hogstow Mill by an apprentice at the mill named Francis Cooper, a story collected by the famous English diarist Samuel Pepys. It is a lyrical form that has remained ever popular with murder ballads penned by musicians such as Tori Amos, Johnny Cash, Nirvana, Foster the People, Sam Cooke and the Decemberists. But in 2012, the murder ballad moved onto the stage with the opening off-Broadway of the rock musical entitled, unsurprisingly, A Murder Ballad, conceived by the award-winning playwright Julia Jordan with the music and lyrics by indie rock singer-songwriter Julia. Nash. It is the raunchy story of a love triangle gone wrong between Sarah, an uptown New York girl, now a wife and mother with a reliable husband, and her bad boy ex with whom her past downtown self had once gotten hot and steamy. And of course, with a title like Murder Ballad, you know it's going to end badly for someone. But who and how? Well, All will be revealed at Talking Horse Productions, which opens Murder Ballad tomorrow night, directed by my guest, Trent Rash, a man of many, many hats, including executive director of the Missouri Symphony Orchestra, along with actor, singer, improv comedian and theatre director, so many hats, and featuring my other guest, actor Megan McNew, who will be playing the love-torn and confused Sarah. Hello, Trent and Megan. Hello. Hello. So good to be here. 
So unless somebody is working through the syllabus titled Bad Choices That Grown-Ups Make, I am guessing, Trent, this is not a show to bring your kids to, right? You are absolutely correct. This is a a really perfect show for October, for Spooky Month, but definitely not one that you probably want to, unless you want to have some pretty interesting conversations with your children, I don't think, I think you want to leave them at home. (laughs) And if you are in the midst of a love triangle, it could be a timely reminder to get out before somebody gets hurt. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) So there are four actors in the play. There is Sarah, of course, her doting husband, Tom, her devilishly enticing ex, Michael, and a narrator who helps join the dots for us and move the production along. Trent, give us an overview of where we are and how everything opens. Absolutely. I do want to just point out, though, that actually Michael is the husband and Tom is the uh, tempter, the ex, the ex-boyfriend. I got them the wrong way um, around. Darn. Yeah, okay. no worries. But we, we start <laughs> off, and, and, and I've talked about this with the cast, but um, not only is this you know, a form of a murder ballad, but it also is sort of the difference between downtown New York and uptown New York. And so we have Sarah who starts off downtown with Tom and they meet at a bar and and they have this very explosive relationship that is, is really not really good for either one of them. And then she meets Michael, you know, by chance and they fall in love and they move uptown where he's from and they have a kid and she sees a life that she could have. And yet she's still drawn to the life before, even though there were some troubles with it. So it's, I wrote about this in my director notes, but the show really is about longing and how in Mm. life we all long for something and that longing can either lead us to something good or to create something good or to do something destructive for ourselves. And it's really up to us what choice we make. Mm. Megan, you are Sarah in a safe and secure marriage with a man. I guess you kind of met him on the rebound, but you can't escape this past self, this longing for this past life. Tell us about Sarah and and her relationships with both Michael and Tom. Oh, boy. So Sarah does kind of go from one relationship immediately to the next and complete complete opposites as far as relationships go. You know, Tom is that that very intense, passionate love and relationship, whereas Whereas Michael, her husband, is definitely more of that trusting and supportive and and more safe relationship. And so I think she is happy with her relationship with Michael, but I think she went from one to the next so quickly. I think that kind of plays a part in, in her, you know, going back to thinking, well, what if, what if things were different with Tom and, and having that temptation kind of bring her back to that. Is Sarah a stranger to you or do you kind of bond with her in her relationship with one over the other of the two men? That's an interesting question. (laughs) (laughs) I would say yes and no. Um, I think anyone could relate to Sarah just in the fact that she is a human who is, who is struggling and and that's why she does go back to Tom is, you know, she is struggling mentally with, you know, her, her husband works, her daughter is now going to school and she's a stay at home mom. And she is having, I think a big issue of hers is she's having trouble finding, uh, finding purpose in her life with, with these things that are happening. Uh, and I think anyone can relate to, to the character in, in that regard specifically as, you know, I think everyone in, at some point in their life has a, has a moment where they, they feel like their life lacks purpose and they aren't really sure what to do Mm. about that. 
Trent, this is a musical where everything is sung. Is that right? There are no spoken bits at all. Right. Yeah, it's all sung. There are a few, few little words that they say here and there. But yeah, everything is sung straight through from top to bottom. So tell us about the music. So it's interesting. The music is definitely, you can tell that it was written by a contemporary singer-songwriter. To me, there's feels of some 80s rock, some 90s pop. It's very fun, actually. For me, it makes me, reminds me of my my days, of my youth. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it, it is a actual traditional band setup. There's a, a electric bass, electric guitar, drums, acoustic guitar, and piano. They share parts. And so you really get... Um, the sense that you're sort of in in some ways experiencing almost a concert. I think people will identify with it in terms of what they maybe heard on the radio in the past or in their cars on Spotify. But at the same time, there's a really intense storyline happening while you're experiencing that music. Megan, one critic described the lyrics as flinty. (laughs) There are great lines like Sarah and Tom were good in bed, naive, ambitious and underfed in songs called Mouth Tattoo. So (laughs) what is your take on the score and the lyrics? Is it hard to sing? No, not really. Uh, The most difficult part is that some songs, it can be a little repetitive in the lyrics with just like very slight variations. With each with each verse or chorus, I would say that's probably the most difficult part about it is just the very slight variations of like essentially singing the same thing in some of the songs. But no, I think I think the music is and the lyrics are overall really great and moving. And I thoroughly enjoyed getting to sing everything that I've gotten to sing in this show. Megan, you've talked a little bit about Sarah and who she is. And so without revealing anything, of course, (laughs) (laughs) no spoilers, but there is a component of depression maybe about her and mental health in Mm -hmm. her journey. And there's some musings about how being a parent can affect your relationship. Mm -hmm. What what else do we learn about Sarah as as we progress along with her before we get to the the big final conclusion? I think we can learn that Sarah is... um, she is a very strong willed character and, you know, she maybe has made some mistakes along the way, but I think in the end, she figures out that the key to finding your purpose is not moving backwards, but moving forwards and finding new ways to find purpose instead of going back to old ways that you may have found purpose. In the original production of Murder Ballad, when it was in New York, it was set in an actual bar. So, Trent, I'm curious about how you are going to be staging this at Talking Horse Productions' relatively small black box theatre with also a band there. (laughs) Yeah, well, actually, so we do have a bar. We built a bar. Um, There is a bar on site and actually took advantage of height. So we have some levels. We have about three different levels and one of the things that I did that I had not seen in any productions that I had sort of used in my research was I made it a little bit more literal just because I think it can be hard to follow. It's so through composed and, and it moves so quickly, almost cinematically, that it can be hard to know where you are and, and really what's happening. So I did create very specific locations for the bar and for Sarah and Michael's home and the perch where the narrator is. And I'm hoping that will help people kind of maybe understand, you know, what's happening as we go along. I can't even imagine how you're fitting it into that space if you've got multiple venues. Because, I mean, there's a scene in Central Park, too, I think, right? So you've got these different locations and this bar upon which they stand and they move and they dance. Mm -hmm. (laughs) How are you cramming it all in there? Yeah, it it happened. And, And, you know, they do stand on the bar. The bar is used and it's sturdy and 
we took advantage of the long wall, the longest wall of the of the space, and we are using every inch of it. Will drinks be available for the guests at the bar? Well, not at our bar, but next door <laughs> there will be a special murder ballad drink at Dogmaster Distillery that Van Hoxby is working up for me that will be available for purchase. Excellent. Megan, although... I don't think anyone takes their clothes off. It is it is a pretty steamy production. So mm-hmm. talk to me about how everyone is managing their intimacy comfort levels. Well, so we actually had uh, we had an intimacy coordinator work with us, which I I've never been through that process before, and it was it was a very interesting process to go through for this show, and I really enjoyed it because it gave us an opportunity to talk about, you know, where, where our boundaries are with one another and also create a sense of, of trust with the person on stage you're working with and just, you know, the, the show as a whole. And it actually, it really made it feel more like choreography. Mm. It doesn't feel like anything other than choreography with the way we we've worked it. And we're really not doing a lot physically, it's more of giving the illusion of that we are. It's the purpose is to make it seem like we're doing something more and we're being more intimate than what we actually really physically are. When you had initially read through the uh, the script, were there things that you had concerns about that were, you were glad they were being addressed in this process? <laughs> I wouldn't say necessarily concerned because Everyone in the show is someone who who I trust and have worked with before and consider, you know, decent friends. But knowing that the intimacy stuff was going to be coming up, knowing that there were going to be some sort of physical type things going on in the show, it's really hard to imagine what exactly that's going to look like until you do it. So that was that was the biggest part for me is like, how are we going to do this? How is this going to look genuine and not awkward? How, what are we going to do to make it work? And what we did really makes it work. Trent, how about for you as the director? You, you might have a vision of how one thing is going to look and then the intimacy coach comes along and says, no, that's not going to work. I mean, <laughs> how much did you have to change in that process? Yeah, no, it was a, it was really a, actually a wonderful collaboration. And what was really interesting to me as a director, because I really learned through this, is that there's a particular scene with Sarah and Tom where they go back and forth between fighting and being intimate. And so it was actually a true collaboration between my fight choreographer, because there are some really intense and very, um, they make it look very real fight scenes, and then this intimacy work. And I felt the whole time it was a true collaboration. And um, what I was able to do is, is step back and see the big picture. So as they were working on the details, I could speak from the big picture's perspective. And, and I think that I'll help it all work really well together. Any final thoughts, Trent, on why Murder Ballad was so compelling to you and why you wanted to direct it? Well, honestly, I think I was taking a risk. It's definitely not a show that I've directed before ever. And I think it was something I wanted to challenge myself to do. And I do feel like I learned and and grew through the process. Sarah, had you seen it? Sarah, sorry, Megan, had you you seen it before? Or did you have any preconceived ideas about it? I have not seen it before. I learned about it when Talking Horse was initially going to do it a couple years ago before the pandemic hit. So um, I have been pretty familiar with the soundtrack since then, just because this has been a show that I have been interested in doing for two years now. But no, I had never had the opportunity to see it on stage. 
Well, Mad About opens at Talking Horse Productions on St. James Street in Columbia tomorrow night and runs through this weekend and then Thursday through Sunday next weekend. To find out more, visit TalkingHorseProductions.org and if you want to familiarise yourself with the music before you go, the cast album is available on multiple streaming platforms. Trent Rash and Megan McNew, thank you so much for taking us behind the scenes and for making time to chat. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Always a pleasure. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingoftheartstransistorfm And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. to my guests this evening. Director Elizabeth Broughton-Palmieri and actor Lindsay Oberly from Stevens College, Conservatory for the Performing Arts, poet Lynn Jensen-Lampy and director Trent Rash and actor Megan McNew from Talking Horse Productions. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. This has been Speaking of the Arts, and my name is Diana Moxon. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!